Thank you for teaching us to love our enemies. But this is a hard saying. Help us to find the gospel in it. And give us the Holy Spirit so that we might step closer to doing what you've asked us to do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mr. Rogers, that famed television personality, appeared before Congress in 1969 to petition them for financial support, financial support for public broadcasting. Uh, He was asked by uh, one of the senators on the panel to speak about the content of his television program for children. He told them that he encouraged, through play acting, speech, and song, emotional health among children because, for him, according to him, emotionally healthy children become emotionally healthy adults. And at a key moment in his address, he decided, in a rather inspired way, to quote one of his own songs. Here are the lyrics. What do you do? with the mad that you feel when you're just so mad you could bite. When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right. What do you do with the mad that you feel? It seems especially pertinent given what we've experienced or witnessed uh, in this political season. And I'm not talking politics. I'm saying from every angle. The onslaught has been relentless. The name-calling, the things spray-painted on churches, the, uh, the, the hard-line labeling of one another, the hastily written online comments, the furious conversations that we've had with each other. I'm wondering if you've said anything in the last three months that you regret. Uh, there was one pundit citing the Stephen King novel, Carrie, who remarked, for months we've been covering each other with buckets of blood. And that's about right. Into this world of blood sport, Jesus speaks a non sequitur. He throws a wrench into our machine of rage. He says something that we don't want to hear. It interrupts our diatribes, our opinions that we express so furiously that we get out of breath as we're expressing them. And he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and do good to those who hurt you. That word doesn't fit in any world, but that word represents reality. And so we're going to focus on those words uh, tonight. Jesus in this text makes a distinction, a contrast, between what could be called instinctive love versus a God-shaped love. I want to speak about instinctive love first to get it out of the way because Jesus is trying to move us and woo us past this kind of commonplace loving. It's found in the middle of our passage. The rest of the passage, at the beginning and the end, is the God-shaped love. But let's go right to the middle. Verse 32. If you love those 
who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Here's the thing about instinctive love, love that comes via nature. Instinctive love is, by its nature, reciprocal. It expects always to be paid back, and not just paid back, but paid back in the same amount. This kind of love, instinctive love, has a very limited audience. Namely, it's only offered to people who are secure and safe. Safe enough to understand good manners and that you have given to them, and at some point they must return the compliment. So this kind of reciprocal love has a very limited scope and audience. Jesus regards this kind of love as unremarkable, entirely unremarkable. He says three times, if you want to love in this way, even sinners do that. People that hate God do that. People that totally reject moral norms do that all the time. That's not impressive. That's a herd mentality. It's not fascinating, nor is it spiritually deep. That's just biology. It's evolution. It's just what we do. For Jesus, it isn't even real love. You know what it is? It's a treaty. You won't hurt me. I won't hurt you. And we'll just roll on together. But the fascinating thing about Jesus is that he's always trying to lead us to a deeper place. He's trying to move us past what is intuitive. But what comes naturally to me as Ethan Magnus? When I love as a man... I love things that by their nature appeal to me or that make me feel safe or that grant me some sort of reward. Whether it's personalities or things, that's what I love. I love my wife. I love my children. I love Baconators at Wendy's. I love Van Halen music from the 80s. I love Gothic architecture. I love Ireland. But Jesus is tapping us on the shoulder and he says there's so much more. This project hasn't even begun. There is a better way to love. And he moves us from instinctive love to a God-shaped love. A God-shaped love. This is the idea that envelops the text. It's an idea of non-reciprocal love. This is what Jesus says. He begins by saying, I say to you who hear, that is, who have um, the capacity to understand a new thing, a new idea, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And then later in verse 35, he repeats it. Love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Talk about for a moment the recipients of this love. Jesus labels them, all of them, enemies, those who hate, uh, abusers, those who curse you, those who steal your clothes. That is, the bare necessities of life. And bad borrowers. Notice, he tells us here to love our enemies. Those are the recipients. Enemies. Here's what's so hard about that. Are we even good at loving our friends? Don't your friends, like, bug the snot out of you? Don't your friends drive you crazy with their neediness, their flakiness, their, uh, their, their wanton uh, um, uh, behaviors that change all the time, their, their, their romances that are too complicated and you're tired of hearing about them? 
um, you know, their idiosyncrasies, their tics. Our friends drive us crazy. I'm not even sure we love them well. And then there are our acquaintances. Those on the, you know, the, the next, the, the, they're, they're farther out. You know, they're in the outfield. And the acquaintances are just annoying. I mean, not all of them, or they'd be your friends, I guess, if they weren't annoying. But they have, like, all these personality quirks and problems that just drive you crazy. I mean, there's not a sense of, of deep connection with them. We're not even necessarily good at loving them. Jesus goes further, goes right to the jugular and says, I want you to love your enemies. I want you to love people that plot against you, that hurt you, that make your life hard, that cause you to stay awake at night, who, people that make you afraid. I want you to love them. And notice the, the action toward these recipients. I say action because there's a lot of verbiage in this passage, a lot of verbs. This is what he says. He says, do good, bless, pray for, give your tunics, turn your cheeks, give money, and do all of that without expecting to be helped in return. I find, um, I find two things about this rather fascinating. One is that we are with action to move toward people that hurt us. To be honest, I wish that Jesus had said something different. Don't you sometimes wish that when you read the Bible, that it, you could rewrite it like Jefferson? You could just like take out chunks that you don't like and maybe fill it in with your own philosophy. Jesus is suggesting here that via action, we move toward people who have wronged us um, uh, with, with loving um, fruit, essentially, loving results. Um, Jesus does not do what I'd prefer, which is to say, just work for a zero-sum game. Here's what I want you to do, friends. Just don't hate people. Wouldn't that be nice? Like, you don't have to, like, help them or do anything good for them. Just try to avoid actively hating them. And then the sermon would be over, and I would feel better, and you would feel better, and we could both go home thinking that we we're going to do that someday. But instead, he says to do good, something far more proactive. Take a step toward. Don't protect yourself. I also would, would have been happier if Jesus curtailed his saying here and, and made it something like this. I want you to love them with your hearts. Like, just make it existential. Just love them deep, deep, deep down. Deep down. But he lists a bunch of actions here. And so this is when the protest comes in me. I have an inner protester, I think you do too, who says, give me a break. What is this? Are we all going Amish? Like, is that we're just a bunch of doormats now? Is that what we are? We're just going to have people walk all over us. We're going to, you know, life has to entail at its center a high degree of self-protection because the world is a scary place and we live in the world. The truth is this real world that we talk about, a world of violence, a world of hatred, a world of tearing things apart, is not the original vision for the world. I would also say this. As Jesus makes his comments about loving your enemies, I can assure you that Jesus is not naive about the nature of the world. Remember, friends, his grisly death. Rather, Jesus knew that this kind of love, love for enemies, had its origin in the strongest power. Notice he calls him the most high in this text. This is how the most high, above whom there is nothing, this is how he thinks of love. This is what love looks like according to his definition. The love of enemies, of those who, uh, who willfully hurt you. Um, and so, for, for Jesus, when we love like this, we are communicating to the world, showing the world that there is a God who does the same thing, who loves his enemies. And so the one in this church right now, 
The one who is most like Jesus Christ here is the one who loves the most. Not the one who just knows the most, or could argue the best, but the one who loves the most. Augustine, when speaking about this verse, or writing about it, rather, reminds us that we, too, were once God's enemies. We were, to quote St. Paul, children of wrath, sitting on the dark side of justice. And then Augustine says, for those who have a problem with this, remind yourself of who you once were when it came to God and how he loved you in that place. And then Augustine famously says, in loving me, you made me lovable. This is a God-shaped love, uh, a love that has its origin in the heavenlies. Now, people sometimes make the protest, and it's a perfectly understandable one. Well, what about systematic abuse? What about systematic abuse in our schools, on our buses? What about physical, emotional, and sexual crimes against people? Are we to permit that act of abuse indefinitely? I would say this, that remember, Jesus is coming from a rich tradition in Judaism, and the prophets within that tradition speak a lot about standing up for truth and speaking truth to power and not being afraid to do so. There is a real place in the scripture for that kind of courage to combat injustice. Um, And so I think it's possible, in fact, to engage Jesus' teachings with heart while at the same time opening our mouths and speaking truth. You know, sometimes Jesus was silent before his accusers, wouldn't say a word. There was another time when somebody slapped him when he was being tried in court. And he challenges the guy and says, why did you hit me? I was speaking the truth. If I'm speaking the truth, you shouldn't hit a person. (laughs) That's Ethan's translation. (laughs) But you get the idea. Uh, Sometimes he was silent before his accusers, and sometimes he responded. So it takes some wisdom. But I will say this, the impulse is universal. Um, Even when we're combating injustice and have to stand for truth, we do so not for vengeance, and there's the slippery part, not for vengeance, but in order that our enemies would become well. You understand? That we have a different end game in sight. We don't want retribution. We want them to repent and get well with God and the world. We want them to understand grace. We want them to be forgiven. We want them to experience a good life. So I openly admit, friends, that the application of Jesus' ideas here is very complicated, relationally, even nationally. But I'll tell you what, sometimes, just speaking for myself, I focus on the complexity of some of what Jesus is saying. You know, what does this really mean? How would you interpret this? I mean, what are the schools of thought of interpretation? I mean, how do we really grapple with what he's saying? I mean, I mean, is it he's just speaking personally? Is he speaking nationally? Are there international components here? I mean, what's really going on? He can't possibly be meaning this or this. And by the time I'm done nuancing away Jesus' own words, I end up not having to put it into practice at all. But I would say, let this passage, let his words invade and challenge and toss over a few tables. Uh, Let them do their work. Let the scriptures, in other words, exegete us. This is the love he's trying to lead us into, a love that has its foundation in the Most High God and that can be a reflection of that Most High God. Uh, I read an interesting story about this kind of love from Corey Ten Boom. She was the famed Holocaust survivor and author Corey and her father and her sister were arrested uh, and sent to concentration camps. You may know that her father and sister died in the camps. 
uh, and Corey was eventually uh, released, though she was released on a clerical error. All of the women uh, her age in uh, Ravensbrook, the, the concentration camp, were sent to the gas chambers but her. Corey dedicated her life to spreading the message that, to quote her, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Through opening homes for rehabilitation and writing books and embarking on speaking tours, she tried to communicate this message. She writes in a book called The Hiding Place of an encounter which challenged her to her very foundation. She was on one of her speaking tours, way after uh, the atrocities were over. And she writes, I was at a church service in Munich when I saw him, a former SS soldier who had stood at the shower room door at Ravensbrook, watching all of us naked showering. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, and my sister's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, clearly not recognizing me, beaming and bowing. He said, how grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, to think that, as you say, he has washed all my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to people in rehabilitation centers the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin in them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not even the slightest spark of charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. And then my hand raised. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. I want to offer us, in closing, three challenges that, if accepted, will unchain us from hate. They correspond to Jesus' three words in this passage. Love your enemies. Love. The love for Jesus in this passage is action-oriented. We're called to action-oriented love toward enemies. If you haven't read the big book of AA, I suggest that you do, whether you're an alcoholic or not. It's just that good. And uh, in the book, it says this to an alcoholic, don't trust your heart. Don't trust your heart. Because your heart will tell you when you run into a problem or a crisis, you know what would make this all better? A fifth of liquor. And if you drink, and drink a lot, you'll forget your problems and you'll be happy, or you'll be poetic, or you'll be the life of the party, but for three good hours, 
you can forget and move on. AA says don't always trust your heart. But sometimes it's better to take a counterintuitive action against the draw of your fallen heart because sometimes that small action taken out of accord with your sinful heart can reset your heart. Acting and doing the thing that is unnatural, including something to love your enemy, will not feel like it's coming from entire total sincerity, but it might bring you or lead you to a place of greater sincerity. It could be a small thing. You know, maybe you should drink coffee tonight. Maybe you should stay up. Maybe you should finally write the letter. Maybe you should make the phone call. Uh, Maybe you should have the conversation. Maybe you shouldn't live with this noose around your neck any longer. And friends, in order to love in this way with action, we have to be theists. We have to believe, as St. Paul did, that there is a God who is just, who will handle it. We, and so we, by doing these small things, we're saying to God, I trust you to work out this situation. So love, and now your. It's personal. Your enemies have a face. And maybe right now there's a face just coming to mind, right now as I'm speaking. But this person is just present, always in the background of your life, then the truth is they have a lot more authority uh, than they should. And sometimes those hands from the past can grab you in the present and pull you right back to where you were when you got hurt. Maybe they're sitting in the room tonight. I don't know. Maybe they've harmed you and maybe you've hurt them back. Uh, Maybe you can't hurt them in the same way they hurt you, so you tell everybody else about your hurt, everybody but them. We Christians call that sharing. It's really sin, but we can call it sharing if it helps us feel better. But the thing is, um, I want you to think about your situation, your enemy. So love your, and then enemies. Here's the great thing about enemies. In the Bible, it's a category of transition. Enemies don't have to stay enemies. Malice really can melt, you know. This is what St. Paul says about the power of love as it's embodied in us by God. He says in verse 21 of Romans 12, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Evil can be overcome. Enmity can be overcome. I think if we can grapple with this, even a little bit, and I know sometimes it is awfully hard, and I can't even imagine the pain that is going through some of you right now as I'm even talking about this. But I think if we can have this message seep into us slowly, over time, we can grow up to resemble that great carpenter Messiah who bled for all of us when we didn't love him. Back to Mr. Rogers. After quoting his song to Congress, a rather teary Congress, the lead senator on the committee responded with an illegal pronouncement. Can you imagine that? Like somebody in Washington doing anything illegal? Crazy, right? Uh, he responded after hearing Mr. Rogers, well, I guess you just won your $10 million. <laughs> Let me read to you the closing lyrics of that song. This is a song again about being hurt by somebody and how you respond. It's great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong, and to be able to do something else instead. And what a good feeling to feel like this, to know there's an end to the mad. 
to know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can. For a girl can be someday a woman, and a boy can be someday a man. May we be known as emancipated, grown sons and daughters of the Most High, like him, wealthy in love. I invite you to stand. Uh, Because we can't do anything that I've just said, but with our own power, we have to begin with God. And so I want to ask us to be still, and I want to lead us into uh, a time of prayer. I'll offer a prayer and then leave two times of, of silence where we can be still before God. Heavenly Father, who is known for loving enemies back into life, I ask you to send your Holy Spirit to dive deeply into our innermost sanctuaries, into the furthest reaches of our hearts, which are often filled with hurt, obsession, fear, and resentment. Would you uncover for us the face of an adversary, one who may be close to us or far away, or one who has even died? Remind us of someone who has used us, harmed us, actively brought us pain. Bring to our minds someone that is impossible in our own powers to love. Father, with you, we can acknowledge the pain that was dished out to us, how real it was, how real it still feels. Help us not to minimize the wrong that was done to us, nor hold on to it as a lifeline that cannot bring us life. At the same time, bandage, salve our wounds, Bring us to a new place of healing and wholeness. And we ask for your spirit to make known to us ever more deeply the forgiveness that you have lavished upon us when we were wandering away, spending down our inheritance, when we harmed others with our gossip, our bodies, our tactics, our anger that was covered over with sanctified language. We ask for your same gift of forgiving love to be directed toward those who have hurt us, knowing that your gracious arms can stretch even that far. We pray that these people would experience the fullness of the love of Christ, be helped and not harmed, be brought to a place of repentance and health, Some of us might not be ready to show the actions of love and mercy right now, but we pray that we would within our lifetime be made willing. We pray that at some point we would be made whole 
enough to offer grace. If there is something you would have us do to demonstrate love to them in time and space, uh, please help us to know what that is. Thank you for your work in us. Thank you for drawing us to Jesus. Thank you that the inner work has begun. Thank you that you are the lover of haters and the justifier of sinful men and women. Uh, Inspire us to lean into this teaching that we might be known as sons and daughters of the Most High who love so lavishly. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.